This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Have a listen to this. Have a listen to this. Now, that kind of talk this week dragged Australia's share market to a two-year low. There are, of course, complex reasons for that. He was the big spender. The big spender. Doing the grocery shopping could take a huge chunk out of the family budget. And that's finance. Hello and welcome to Comedian vs Economist. We demystify the world of money and help you get a handle on the bigger picture. My name's Adam and we're joined as always by my little older brother and real-life economist, Thomas. Hi, Thomas. Yeah, good, Adam. How are you doing? Good, thank you. You always answer yeah at the start of that, uh, to oh, which no question has been asked. It's sort of just affirmative, positive listening skills. I'm reinforcing <laughs> that I'm engaged, I'm listening to what you're saying. How are you going? Yeah. Thomas, last week on the show you said... Uh, the OPEC oil crisis in the 70s came about as a result of Israel invading Palestine. Turns out not true. Uh, mm. Sarah wrote in to let us know that it was in fact due to Egypt and Syria invading Israel. So um, I just want to give Sarah a shout out. Sarah did go to great lengths to say, look, you don't need to, to issue a correction on the show. But A, we love getting emails. B, we love learning. And the fact that Sarah was so nice about correcting us is really appreciated. So uh, hopefully that, that clears things up. And, you know, let's be honest, we all like it when Thomas is wrong. So huh. <laughs> so thank you, Sarah. Uh, do really appreciate it. Of course, you can send us an email too if you like, uh, cve at equitymates.com or find us on socials at CVE Podcast. And, Thomas, in fact, we have had a lot of emails and messages lately um, from mm. everyone out there telling us how much you're enjoying the show and we're super grateful for all of the support. So uh, if you can, if, if you can leave us a rating or a review, that would be amazing. Or better yet, just tell your friends. It doesn't cost anything. Tell your friends when they inevitably ask you, hey, know any good podcasts. Uh, that'll help us keep doing what we're doing. We'd very much appreciate it. But on with the show Thomas, and jobs data is out and Geelong has the lowest unemployment rate in the country, which is not surprising if you watch their game against the Bombers on the weekend because it looked like they were playing with an extra 25 players. Disappointing news for all us Bombers fans out there. Thomas, think about the last bakery pie you had, how tender and delicious it was. Now forget it, inflation is going to hit pies and you're going to have to start eating black and gold frozen pies from the supermarket if you want a pie. That's coming up. Um, and there's a brain drain happening with the current government, mainly because smart people are bored because the government won't let them do smart things, so they're all leaving. And a month on was the New York Times decision to buy Wordle a goody decision or a baddie decision? Note that goody and baddie are both five-letter words you can use in your Wordle games if you like. They're also evidence of why I'm not very goody at Wordle. But, Thomas, first I thought <laughs> I'd check in. How are things looking for you in Mullumbimby? 
Yeah, life's, life's slowly coming back to normal. Um, things are still pretty hectic out in the hills, a lot of roads cut off, a lot of mudslides still, still to be sorted out. So still, mm. yeah, a lot of communities isolated, a lot of people still homeless, uh, a lot of houses getting condemned and becoming un- uninhabitable. So, yeah, it's still a pretty hard story, but we're slowly picking up the pieces and getting on with it. Mm. The, big new, the big news last weekend, though, was that our Telstra Tower caught fire. Oh, um, I saw that. Yeah, so we've got we've had no phone coverage for since Friday. Uh, still out now on on Monday night. You wouldn't need phone coverage in a flood <laughs> recovery, would you? Yeah, no. Actually, we working in the recovery centre doing comms. We we actually <laughs> found it quite inconvenient to not have access <laughs> to phones. Uh, I noticed you said also that the tower caught fire. It was not set on fire. <laughs> There's so a, there's a there's a lot of debate in Mullumbimby about why the Telstra Tower caught fire. So there, there's imagine. a there, there's talk a, of the town. A, <laughs> if, only, yeah. if only people could talk. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we have we have a we're we're the epicenter of uh, anti five G protest, and mm. there's been a bit of a blockade around um, stopping Telstra from upgrading the five the tower to five G. Right, uh, and there was a bit of a rumor, which apparently, which I learned, is not true. That in the first week of the, after the floods, that Telstra came in and sneakily upgraded the tower to five G, uh, but that wasn't true. Apparently, but that was <laughs> Telstra, that rumor was Telstra could not organize that. Have you ever called Telstra for <laughs> assistance? <laughs> they, they don't have guerrilla engineers <laughs> ready to be deployed. <laughs> Come on, people, get real. Yeah, no, there were black helicopters flying in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the conclusion that everyone jumped to was that mm. the 5G activists had set fire to the tower in retaliation. Right. Which for a lot of people was not a very popular move. Mm. Uh, but then the 5G groups came out and denied responsibility for it, said it, said it wasn't them. And that it may in fact be a, a, a false flag operation on Telstra's behalf ah. to cast aspersions on the five anti five G crew. Are they a terrorist so, organisation uh, <laughs> denying and claiming responsibility? Yeah, well, Telstra, Telstra's running black flag ops. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's, <laughs> wow. Who knows? So it's 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 crazy times here in Mullumbimby, but we don't have phone coverage, so that's that's making it tricky. I'm conscious, though, Thomas, that we always. Well, we, we can be swayed by the media and just assume there's only one side to any story. And so a lot of people are obviously, you know, throwing mud at the 5G groups, the anti-5G groups, anti-vaxxers, whoever else you want to throw into that pile. So there is a criminal investigation still underway, I believe. So I thought it would be worth just exploring some plausible explanations. I've, I've put together a few plausible mm. explanations that I wouldn't mind just getting you to to just have a think about and see which one you think might be the most likely. So number one mm. is that the internet was already down and by the time they'd arranged for someone to uh, to sort it out, they'd already deployed that person to climb the, the tallest point in the town and light a fire to alert nearby villagers to <laughs> the, the need for help. So those things take a little while to mobilise. So it's possible that during the flood someone said, we need, to, we, need to bring, we need to get help 
Johnny, you run to the top of the tallest <laughs> tower you can find and light a fire and hopefully someone will see it. That's number one. <laughs> number two is it was a big disaster. There's no, there's no denying that. And when these things happen, people like to, to light candles and have candlelight vigils for the people who are suffering in the disasters. So I'm thinking a disaster this size calls for a big-ass candle. <laughs> Could be a sympathy candle, is what I'm saying. <laughs> Number three, the floods, they've subsided thankfully, but you'd be well aware there's a bit of a stench around, there's a lot of bad smells from all the mud, from the, the mould, the mildew that's growing. This one seems most likely to me is that someone in Mullumbimby has tried to create the biggest incense candle <laughs> to cover yeah. the whole town in like <laughs> rosemary. Yeah. <laughs> it is quite lavendery at the moment. There you go. Yeah. That's it. All right, Thomas, jobs data was out this week and unemployment has dropped to a near 14-year low of 4%. Mm. Uh, what did we learn? 4.0% on the nose, very tidy Oof. number. Yeah, another strong result, added 77,000 new jobs. So that's a, mm. that's a very strong number, tonk that in. Yeah, it's just a strong story across the board. It can, the labour market continues to be very strong, full-time jobs. So often, you know, labour market recovery, you get a pick-up in part-time jobs and it takes a while for that to to morph into full-time employment, but not this mm. time around. We've, we've gone full-time jobs are up 4% on their pre-pandemic levels versus a half a percent for part-time jobs. So, yeah, full-time employment's up and labour force participation is at a record high. So that's, that's another interesting story. Like you look at what's happening in the UK and the US, participation rate fell in the early days of the pandemic and then bounced back, but it's still a full percentage point lower than where it was pre-COVID. So a lot of people, we talked about in the US about the great resignation and mm. So we haven't seen that in Australia and we haven't seen a fall in participation. Participation's in fact actually gone higher and is at record high. So that's really interesting. Don't they go hand in hand? Unemployment and participation? You get more, uh, more people participating, then you've got less unemployment. Uh, no. It's basic maths. Yeah, except the maths is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> that's why it's basic. <laughs> Very basic maths. That's, that's what they put you into, isn't it? Basic maths. <laughs> Maths in society or something. <laughs> Social maths. <laughs> Social maths. Uh, yeah, no, no, uh, no, no, it's not, not quite right. Hmm. Because like if you're, if you're not participating in the labour labor force, so if you're unemployed but you're not actually <sighs> looking for work, you, you're right. not counted. And so people can get, you have this discouragement effect where people go, oh, there's no jobs out there, I'm not even going to bother looking. Yeah, so it's, it's not necessarily the case that, that it works like that. So... Mm. But in this case, yeah, it is strong. There maybe is a bit of an encouraged worker effect where the low unemployment rate is pulling people back into the labour market. Maybe that's mm. going on. When you break it down, it's also interesting is that pickup in participation is largely about uh, women. So right. male participation is about where it was pre-COVID, but female participation is significantly higher. Right. Yeah, so it's been, it's been a good jobs market for women in particular since since COVID. Do we have any idea why that is? Yeah, I don't know. I did a little looking at this and really didn't really come up with much. Of the 377,000 jobs we've added since COVID started, mm. 
65% of those have been to women. Wow. So women are catching it, you know. So it's like 50% is your benchmark there. So it's not massively more but significant. Hmm. Um, but then if you break it down by industries, it's not necessarily the case that it's, you know, your, your female-focused industries. But they're also – like we used to look at that. It's a lot um, cheaper you know, to hire women you don't have, <laughs> with the – Gender pay gap. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Maybe that's it. Maybe yeah. Wait, firms are worried about the wages bill. Yeah, exactly. I thought like, I just oh, well, need an engineer, can... but I think I might just go out and get a female engineer because yeah, they're cheaper. Yeah, see, people are thinking. Yeah, structural um, structural inequality is still definitely a feature of the labour market. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, but I don't know. I haven't I, I haven't seen a good good explanation for that. Hmm. So the pandemic. Um, sent a lot of people home and so we don't have all the foreign workers that we perhaps did have pre-pandemic. Mm. Does that play into these numbers a bit as well? Like, I mean, uh, are a lot of jobs that would have been filled by overseas people now available to local people? I think you definitely have to read that out of the numbers. Like if you mm. look at total employment, it's it's higher than it was pre-pandemic but it's below trend. So mm. if you look at where the trend was going we would have expected to have more jobs by now. Right. You would have expected to have created more jobs over the past two and a bit years than we have. Mm. So we haven't done that. So in that sense, the labour market has underperformed trend in terms of its job creation, but unemployment has fallen. The unemployment rate has fallen. And that's because there's uh, less people in the labour labor market than there would have been because we've had negative immigration for since, since the pandemic really. So I think right. it's, that's definitely a feature, yeah. Because I saw we had, the, we had the South Australian Australian elections last weekend and the outgoing Premier Stephen Marshall, he was talking about what a great job they'd done. You know, they'd got unemployment down to 5%, which sounds amazing, but it's like one of the highest in the country. In fact, mm. it is the highest in the country. But it felt a bit like Blind Freddy could did have done Yeah, did you? <laughs> did you? Like <laughs> didn't, didn't just everyone leave and that just meant there was jobs for everyone and and like... You know, it's a bit like buying into a bull market. Like you kind of mm. feel like a genius because you're like, oh, I bought this stock and it went mm. up. It's like, yeah, they all went up. <laughs> mm. yeah, um, yeah, you know, yeah. trying to drive unemployment down when the whole country's unemployment is all heading down doesn't make you a, mm. you know, a genius premier. Economic but. manager. And mm. what like state governments have very little impact on the unemployment rate. Largely, like yeah. it's a largely, I mean, there's sort of stuff you can do, but the whole idea that governments are economic managers mm. is, is a bit of a myth that governments like to <laughs> tell about themselves. Like there's not that much management going on. They administer the public service and that's a large and complex task, but there's only so many levers that they have to, mm. to pull on and largely they're sort of set to run automatically. There's not... There's uh-huh. not that not that much room for management as they'd like to pretend there is. Oh, listen, the Mr. Economist yeah. is slinging it to the government. Yeah, um, I did see Arts and Recreation has one of the highest levels of unemployment, and mm. it just got me thinking. Like, hasn't that always been the case? <laughs> <laughs> I, remember, I remember talking to an actor friend of mine, and I told him about a casting call for an ad. And he was like, I don't do ads. I'm a thespian. I'm like, <laughs> you're unemployed, mate. That's what you are. Like, <laughs> I don't know how we, how we measure unemployment in the arts anyway. Like, are just too many corporate gigs going unfilled, missing out <laughs> on good quality stand-up. There's measures of underemployment, which, which includes, and that captures people who are working but want to be working more hours. 
Right. So I reckon underemployment in the arts and entertainment industry is rife because people might have gigs but they want to be doing more. They want to be doing more. Right, maybe that's what it, Well, it's possible. I'm pretty good at reading though, so it's unlikely that I... Mm, yeah, but you're not good at maths. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Thomas, I actually did read an AFR article last week and it was talking about supermarket inflation, the price of everything going up, but I think it was a thinly veiled attempt at talking about the price of pies, to be honest, because <laughs> it was mostly about pies, which is, what, which is what piqued my interest. One of the claims in the article was that supermarkets are somehow going to benefit from inflation. So I'm mm. curious because... My understanding is the, the inflation's pushing up their costs um, and they're then having to pass on the costs to the customer. Mm. So doesn't their, don't their margins pretty much just remain the same? Like they're not going to make more money because they sell things at a higher price if they're, paying, if they're buying them at a higher price. Am I crazy? No, no, I think, you, I think you're right there. I think you're right there. Like I, I, I had to sort of unpack the logic here and I think mm. what they're saying, so this comes from... Uh, Jardin's head of research, Ben Gilbert, they were quoting him mm. and he was saying that the, the supermarket chains will benefit from inflation that will lead into their margins. But I think what he was saying is that they're going to raise prices with the cost pressures that are in the system now in response to that. But then coming into the next financial year, the, all the costs that they had around COVID and you know, losing staff and... Uh, managing mm. managing sh- shot shutdowns and all that sort of stuff those costs are going to recede and so you're going to have yeah so they'll lift prices in response to current price pressures and then as those costs recede that'll that'll buffer their margins right and they won't they won't drop their prices that quickly they'll hold on to it which is, which is what i think he's saying that they'll hold on to their margins ah uh, so they probably won't make the money yet it'll come It'll come later when everyone's used to paying, you know, eight dollars hmm. a liter for milk. Then yeah. they won't return it back to whatever it is now, a dollar a liter for milk. They'll just drop it to five dollars and tell everyone they've slashed the price of milk. <laughs> yeah. We've yeah. gone crazy. <laughs> milk now only five dollars a liter. <laughs> uh, right. Well, that, that yeah. makes some sense. Yeah, I think I think that's what they're saying. Look, there's no there's no direct line. Like what you're saying is right. Like as their costs, yeah, their profits are determined by their margin. So the margin mm. is the you know the price they sell over uh, what they paid for it. What they're paying for it is going up because costs mm. are increasing across the board. Yeah, but if they just raise prices proportionally, nothing, that doesn't affect their margins. If we get into the meat of the issue, though, mm. uh, that is the fact that pies are going to go up between six and twenty percent, Thomas. In fact, yeah. I had a quick look at the Adelaide Oval and pies are $5 this season, which is even higher oh. than the MCG. It's outrageous. That seems quite cheap for a pie. Is that really what they They're are? They're not good pies. Not yeah. good. Ah, okay. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I'm paying $5 for a coffee. Like. <laughs> That's, you'll also pay $5 for a coffee at, at the Adelaide Oval. Wow, right. What's interesting though is that if the price of pies is going up and uh, there's a company called Patties that make all the pies. I don't know. I thought they'd be a much better fit if they made hamburgers. Patties make pies, so they have uh, I forget a number of different uh, pie companies. Four, four and twenty. Four and twenty. Adams, Nana's. Yeah, yeah. Mm. All the big heavy hitters in the pie industry. <laughs> so they said that even though pies were going up, they were still they would still be viewed as good value by consumers even after the price rises, which just says to me, what an amazing level of commitment we have in this country to pies. Mm. Like, 
even after the price of pies goes up 20%, <laughs> we still think that smashed up meat inside some pastry is good value. <laughs> it, the CEO of Petty, Petty's Foods did say we haven't seen any drop off in demand at this stage. Mm. They've, they've hiked at 20%, you hasn't won't. changed demand. Oh. We say, well, we say that's completely price inelastic. Consumers <laughs> are completely indifferent to the price of pies. They'll just keep buying pies. Yeah. Kids don't need childcare. Keep them home. Eat pies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they said, though, in an inflationary environment, consumers may also trade down to less premium and cheaper products. I don't think you want to take that gamble on a pie. If you're getting, <laughs> if you're getting a, your kind of run-of-the-mill, middle-of-the-road pie, just pay the premium. Pay the extra 20%. Don't go, you don't know what's in it anyway. Don't go down to your less premium pies. What is it even down the price chain from pies, like dog food or something? Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I'm, actually, I'm lucky in my house, my, my kids, I guess sausage rolls are in the same boat. My kids, I've, I've realised, will only eat the sausage rolls, the frozen ones from Aldi. Uh-huh. I've tried them on the premium sausage rolls from the bakery. Beautiful sausage rolls, you know, like... Puffy pastry and nice, nice sausage. No, they won't have it. It's too like hmm. I don't know. It's too flavoursome. They want that. They want that genuine gruel flavour that you can only get from <laughs> from an Aldi frozen sausage roll. So um, hopefully they stay on the budget brands as long as they're living with us. That's all. That's all I can help. All right. On that note, I'm going to go get a pie. Why don't you do as well and come back uh, and join us for more comedian versus economist right after this. <laughs> Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome back. You're on Comedian versus Economist. You can, of course, send us an email, cve at equitymates.com or get us on Instagram and Facebook at CVE Podcast. Thomas, there's a brain drain happening within the government. Plenty of experts currently working for the government or recently working for the government are all leaving to go to the private industry. What's happening there? Yeah, a bit of a bit of a shift. So something the AFR, AFR noted as a trend. So the big news of the past couple of weeks is Guy DeBell, who was the deputy governor of the Reserve Bank, he left the bank to go and work for Fortescue Future Industries, mm. take on that private sector role. So it was interesting in the sense that DeBell was probably due to be the next governor. Pretty solid. He, you know, there's a good chance he would have. Mm got the last job, but Phil Lowe got it instead. You, and you could pretty much guarantee that Guy DeBell is going to get it next. Is there any chance that Guy DeBell was just watching everybody not believing anything that Phil Lowe <laughs> says and just <laughs> went, you know what, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not signing up for that. I want, to be, I want to be listened to. I want to be taken seriously. The guy is a brain. I used to work 
he was there when I was at the bank and he is, it has a seriously intimidating intellect. Like right. he's a phenomenon. Like mm. just like, yeah. Some of he's, us do. Yeah. Yeah. No, yeah. Oh, I'd love to see you two in the same room together. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Wouldn't that be a meeting of the minds? Oh. <laughs> Want a pie, guys? <laughs> yeah. So anyway, so he's but he's so he's packed it all in, and it's interesting. Like he could have been the next governor. Mm. He only had to probably wait a few years for that. They get six year terms. But he said, "No, nah, I'm not going to be the next governor. I'm going to go work on climate. I'm going to go work on climate change issues." Right. Which is it's, and it's a really interesting move. And really interesting that he's like, you know, where we are, where we're at right now, current times. It just feels more important to get involved in this than it does managing the monetary system of an entire nation. I've got a lot. Of, I've got a lot of respect for that. Yeah. Is it possible though that he's also frustrated that the government's lack of action on climate change? I would suspect so, yeah. If you were a climate sort of, I don't know, an activist by heart or you were looking to make tangible difference. Or you just like living on the planet. (laughs) (laughs) I'll settle down, hippie. (laughs) He likes the climate, he likes the environment and he's he's looking at Scotty and he's going, Scotty, you're giving me nothing, I'm out. Mm. Is that, that, that's what's happening too? Uh, To extent, I mean, the, the central bank is not, a vehicle for climate action and it's mm. probably not the right place for climate action like you don't want that it's good that the rba is focused on monetary policy i think you don't want them getting into <laughs> trying to influence <laughs> climate trees. policy <laughs> trees. yeah i mean I, th- I know some people don't do some great work in there but mm. like they look at it in terms of its financial stability risk there's not they don't have policy levers there to influence climate or the climate debate and mm. so I think DeBell's saying, oh, you know, I've got a massive brain on, brain in my head. I'm going to go apply my talents to the coalface of, of climate mm. change. So he's cocky as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You Wait till you meet him. He's, <laughs> he's, he's, he's not. <laughs> so now we've got me, Phil Lowe, as Guy DeBell coming around for dinner. <laughs> yeah. Hope they like pies. Yeah. <laughs> The AFR is saying the climate is the new black in terms of economics. So, you know, when I was at university, the most you could, you know, the most exciting career available to you was probably to work at, with the Reserve Bank. That was that was exciting. Everyone's taught, interested in monetary policy. It's an exciting place to be a public sector economist. Now they're saying the mood's <laughs> shifted. It's, it's more low, interesting. It's a very low bar. <laughs> I've got to be honest. <laughs> The most exciting place you could dream of being. The best thing you could come up with. With your brain, you're a smart man, Thomas. The most exciting thing you could think of doing while you were at uni ploughing through your economics degree was going to work for the RBA. Right. Good. Carry on. Yeah. No, it is. It's, no, it's exciting. It's, mm. it's interesting. Like, you know, at Guy's level, at Guy DeBell's yeah. level, it would be very exciting work. Mm. But... It's more exciting to go and save the planet, which and, mm. you know, and it's probably right. Like it is, it is, it is a really interesting time. The private sector is having to get on board, in the absence of of good leadership out of the public, uh, you know, out of out of policymakers. So mm. it's an exciting time, and the stakes are really high. Um, and I think I think Guy Debell's going to do some incredible work. So yeah, mm. hats good off to him. Mm. I did just notice we had a, a listener email this week too from Dylan. Dylan was asking about is there a better measure like, – there's quite a long email, thank you, Dylan, but I'll try and summarise. But essentially is there a better measure of GDP that brings in 
other factors like the environment? Like, do we have any sort of ways of measuring GDP that take in maybe some more factors than than we do now? Yeah, there is there is streams of economics that try to um, try to capture this. Well, you call them externalities and negative externalities. And so in a transaction, there's parties involved in the transaction, but mm. then there can be parties that are affected by the transaction that are not part, like not, not a part of it. And so they're affected by externalities. They're external to the transaction. So pollution's an example. I buy some steel or whatever from a steel mill. Steel produces pollution. That pollution's mm. not captured in the transaction, but it affects people outside of it. Right. There is a sort of a discipline in economics that tries to capture that and try to put monetary values on on things to try to bring it into the system. Right. It's not neat work because you you know how much how do you value a tree or how do you value a koala or mm. how do you value x tons of CO two emissions? Like it's not neat work. The price isn't set by the market. Do you know what I mean? I don't know. So, I sold a I sold a koala recently. It cost fifty bucks. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Uh, yeah, that's, that's yeah. what a koala costs. He did also ask, uh, he's just trying to get a handle on economics, so he's, that's why he's listening to the show. Thank you, Dylan. He got an old economics textbook from the 90s that he picked up in an op shop. He was wondering what other resources there might be available. Dylan, I'd suggest you go and listen to the first season of Comedian versus Economist where we unpicked all of the the basics of the economy and economics that would be a good place to start, um, season one, uh, even cheaper than an op shop too, so can't go wrong. All right, Thomas, do you play Wordle? No, no, I don't. Mm. I've seen you play it though on holidays. <laughs> it's because you're not as smart as I am, Thomas. That's, that's uh-huh. too hard for you. Um, no, I'm a regular. I'm a regular Wordle player. It's about the only intellectual thing that I do each day. Basically, if, you don't, if you're not familiar with Wordle, Wordles, you have to guess a five-letter word by essentially ruling out wrong and, and misplaced letters. And it's hugely popular. Mm. Like Anna put me onto it, my wife, and I kind of know like that's my kind of barometer for, for popularity things because she'll just kind of – they'll reach her before they reach me because my news feed's like mostly Formula One. So, yeah, hugely popular. There's about – I think they're saying um, about 300,000 individual players every day. It was started by a guy called Josh Wardle. Uh, and Josh Wardle, that's where the, the play on the words on the title Wordle comes from, was from his last name. Josh Wardle uh, invented it to give his wife something to do, which sounds really lovely, but Josh, just maybe take her out for dinner or something, maybe do something nice, converse for a little while. But now he decided he would write an app instead of talking to his wife. So he made Wordle the game um, and it quickly grew to like huge popularity. They don't release player numbers. They have to go off like Twitter mentions and stuff. But once they started being able to share it, you could share your, your Wordle results and your streaks and whatever. So it went gangbusters and then about a month ago, the New York Times bought Wordle for unknown but a cash amount somewhere in the low seven figures, so into the millions of dollars. So, Thomas, what I want to know is why is the New York Times paying millions of dollars for a word puzzle game? Yeah, I think, I think it comes down to the, to the model that they're working with. The short answer is they're just is an advertising play and they're just mm. buying, they're buying a captive market. And the thing that the product that they're selling is subscriptions. It's one of the, one of the stories that I think people don't realise about the media landscape is that, you know, the, 
their profits and their revenues were smashed by the onset of the internet. We all know that story. Mm. But the New York Times went to a subscription model in 2011. They were one of the first papers to do that. And the subscription model is working. They're doing pretty well. The major mastheads get most of their revenue from subscriptions. In 2020, the subscription revenues were back at 2006 levels for the first time. So so they're on the rise. Because they were down, like apparently 80% was subscription, uh, sorry, advertising revenue Mm. in 2006. Mm. And they fell to like 45% of revenue. So, yeah. so you can't newspapers can't rely on ads anymore, which so it used to be their their main breadwinner. So then they mm. have to have subscriptions, right? Yeah, and they seem they seem to be making that play work. And when you're selling subscriptions, then then it's just a marketing question, and you need to get. And Wordle users seem to be pretty engaged, mm. and so maybe there's a way. Like I don't know, you you play it. Like, are they trying to funnel you into a New York Times subscription? New York Times also no, has like a, a game center as well, so there may be a soft sell to that. Yeah, I think I've defeated their model <laughs> through my clever use of bookmarks. Because <laughs> um, yeah, I just like uh-huh. I've got the Wordle page bookmarked, and I just go there. And oh, it's not an it's not an app. No, it's not an app. It's oh. just a, it's on a, it's on their website. It's in amongst some other games if you wanted to go sort of back up the tree. Uh, but I've just got the page bookmark. So there's no ads, there's no cross-selling, there's no upselling, there's no, hey, why don't you think about a New York Times subscription? Did you even know they were owned by New York Times before? Yeah, I did because I lost my progress when they changed over, when, they, when the New York Times uh, bought it and they, I was like in the middle of playing at the time and then my screen just refreshed and, yeah, threw my phone at the wall. Um <laughs> Because I'm addicted to work. No, I didn't really. I don't know. I was just fascinated by what they were getting out of it. So they put all this money into it. The other interesting thing too is that is that Wordle's dropping off. Like they bought right at the peak from the looks mm. of things. They bought right at the top of the uh, the hype cycle. See, I, I don't. Yeah, I don't. I wonder if that's true. I mean, I did read someone saying that like the only the only metric that we've got mm. on on Wordle users is the number of Twitter mentions that it's getting. Yeah, and someone saying that the Twitter mentions are falling because Wordle's getting harder, and mm. people are having less glory to share to their Twitter feeds. Three hundred thousand users that includes you, like all the way out <laughs> here in Australia, like like it's pretty pretty well known, right? Like I've heard, I haven't played it, but I've heard mm. of it. No, it's like too it's got to be, yeah, <laughs> yeah, but it's it's got to be more than three hundred thousand, surely. Yeah, maybe. I don't know, but I don't. I don't think I agree that it's getting harder. I, mean, I think the mm. word today was there. T h e i r. That's not. Yeah, maybe it's. Well, hard. A lot of people get that wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, but I'm surprised there's not like some push to. I don't know. Do you need to register? Do you no. To have no. access to any of your data? No, just just no, rock up and play. Just rock up, play. Ah. Maybe, look, it'll maybe it'll come. They they just just on board at it. Um, mm. You know, these guys making two billion dollars uh, annual revenue. For, mm. for the New York Times. So like a couple of mil, whatever it was, doesn't matter. Even if they yeah. sell like a few, just a few more subscriptions. So maybe it's just a benevolence thing. Just, <laughs> it's reputation. I did, I did see someone saying that if, if they paid $3 million for it, it doesn't sound like they paid that much, but even mm. at $3 million, if they can convert 10% of players to a New York Times subscriptions, 10% of that three, 300,000, then that pays mm. for itself in a year. Maybe they'll just start dropping, like, dropping like subversive words into Wordle, <laughs> like <laughs> NY time was the answer today. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> well, that doesn't even fit. <laughs> I told you, I, told yeah. you I was no good. <laughs> All right, look, why don't we leave it there? We've got pies to eat, wordle to play, uh, lots for you to get on with. Uh, thank you for joining us once again on Comedian versus Economist. Of course, there are lots of other great shows across Equity Mates Media. Get started investing, Equity Mates Investing Podcast. You're in good company. Talk money to me, Crypto Curious. And don't forget FinFest happening October 22nd this year. Head to equitymates.com slash FinFest for all the details. Uh, thank you once again, Thomas, for your input. Thank you. Comedian vs. Economist is a product of Equity Mates Media. All information in this podcast is for education and entertainment purposes only. It is not intended as a substitute for professional finance, legal or tax advice. The hosts of Comedian vs. Economist are not financial professionals and are not aware of your personal financial circumstances. Before making any financial decisions, you should read the product disclosure statement and, if necessary, consult a licensed financial professional. Do not take financial advice from a podcast. For more information, head to the disclaimer page on the Equitymates website where you can find ASIC resources and find a registered financial professional near you. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media and the hosts of Comedian vs Economist acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.